Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I talk with fascinating, talented, and inspiring guests who reflect on the adventures and challenges of aging and who are living their lives with vibrance and purpose. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist, writer, and fellow Zestful Ager. I want to invite you to my brand new free webinar, Zestful Aging, Here's How You Do It. Many of my clients tell me that they're stretched too thin with too many demands upon them. They are just worn out. In my brand new webinar, I teach simple and sensible habits that will significantly improve your life now and help you age with vibrance and resilience. But it's important to start now. Don't wait until your body's distress signals go from a whisper to a scream. If you've followed me at all, you know I'm not about restrictive diets or boot camps. I believe life can be challenging enough. Let's appreciate our bodies and minds for the miraculous systems they are and take the time to take care of ourselves. Self-care pays big dividends now and in the future. And being well ourselves is the only way we can help those we love. And if you sign up now, I will send you my super zestful aging checklist, which I designed so you have clear guidelines right at your fingertips. The webinar is free. You can sign up at NicoleChristina.com. And as always, I appreciate your feedback. Well, I have my Jack Russell Terrier Sparky right beside me and my coffee in my hand. So let's begin. Today's guest lives in walking distance to my home. This is the first time I walked to a podcast interview, which took place in her art studio not far from Syracuse University. We recorded the podcast in her art studio, which was open to her tidy, private backyard and garden. It was a beautiful day and a very relaxed environment. Not what you'd expect in city limits. Mary Geel is well known in Syracuse, New York, and beyond for her social and political art. Former intensive care nurse, Mary used her experiences of treating abused children as a subject for her artwork. After working at the University Hospital for many years, she taught at Syracuse's highly regarded visual and performing arts program, teaching sculpture and fiber arts. Now fully retired, Mary rock climbs all over the world. When she's not climbing, she's making art, which includes spandex wrestling costumes for her nephew. Welcome to Zestful Aging, Mary. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, what would you? How would you like to start? Because you've done so many interesting things, and you know, I'm curious. And I've asked this question of some of my guests before. How do you know when it's time to move on to the next thing? Well, I was nursing for 20 years, and first I started out in a. Uh, adult intensive care unit 
for a few years at University Hospital. Then I went to the emergency room for five years and then ended up for the last 13, 14 years in the pediatric intensive care unit. So why did I move on? I loved my job. I loved working with the patients, um, with the children, with the parents. But at one point, you just realize that it's time to move on. There was changes in the hospital I wasn't um, agreeing with. But more or less, you get tired, even though I loved my job and loved what I did and loved caring for the children. It was just time to move on. And things had happened in my life. So I was able to actually quit working full-time and start teaching part-time at the university. Mm -hmm. Basically, I got married. (laughs) (laughs) That is a big thing. It changes a lot, doesn't it? And I have a very, very supportive husband, um, Gregory Boyer, who who teaches at um, ESF. Uh-huh. in Syracuse. Uh-huh. So with that, I was able to concentrate more on my artwork and him being so supportive of that. I see. So before, I mean, some of this sounds like it was a financial decision. Yeah, I mean, we could do without a full-time salary. Mm-hmm. And I had um, 20 years in, so I could get a pension when I was 55. Mm-hmm. That makes a big difference. It's not much of a pension, but it's a <laughs> Right, right. So I'm wondering, you know, this, you're describing a very, very intense job, um, and particularly intense, as you describe, being in the pediatric ICU and seeing children who had been abused, what was it like to one day be in the throes of that or in that intense environment and then switch over to a university faculty position? That's quite a change. (laughs) Well, it's still helping people. You're still involved with people. You're just doing it a different way. And in the hospital, in pediatrics, we would sit at the bedside and talk with parents and educate them. So now you were in front of a classroom teaching anywhere from 10 to 30, no, 20 students because studio arts, you don't have a lot. Uh, And it it was a very easy switch. When I was in graduate school, I was teaching, uh, working basically 30 hours a week and then teaching a couple classes and taking my graduate work. Oh, it was just, it was a, it was just a smooth transition for me. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it, it, I didn't think about it. It was just a smooth transition. It felt, it didn't feel abrupt. It felt no. like, okay, this is the next, next, next step. step. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you were in a visual and performing arts, is that right? I was in VPA yeah. at SU. at SU, because uh, it's an international podcast, oh, and not everybody <laughs> knows that. Syracuse for, University. Right. For us, it's just, you right. know, we use that all the time. And um, what was that like, teaching some of these up-and-coming artists? What was that experience like for you? It was great. I mean, we had really, really good students. Uh when I was in sculpture, it was a really diverse program, and we had really uh, core professors that was great, Roger Mack, Lawson Smith, and 
people you could go in on the weekends and evenings and everyone was working. Mm -hmm. And I happened to be lucky enough to have a studio so I could be around them. Uh, so I'd be working right there with the students. So you were with your people. I was with my people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was great. And when you were doing your art, um, after you left the hospital, were you still using uh, those themes of the children and the abuse theme? I was still using them. So just to go backwards a little, how I got involved in that abuse um, theme was I took uh, six weeks off to do an artist-in-residence up in Vermont at and when I came back, you floated in nursing once in a while, and they floated me back down to the pediatric ER from the pediatric ICU. And all the nurses were very interesting. They weren't talking to me for some odd reason, and there was a coldness. And then finally someone came over and said, did you know um, Sue had committed suicide? And that was when, in my artwork, it totally did this flip. And I was like, I could use my artwork for other reasons than just making beautiful things. So I, the very first social-political piece I made, it was a uh, 7-foot by 4-foot by 3-foot cage, all out of steel. And I had the nurses um, bring in their old polyester uniforms because you can only wear them so long and then they turn yellow and I folded them and they had stacks them there so it was like you were stuck in this profession that you couldn't get out you were trapped and I had donations from all over the hospital they would bring me their old uniforms and then um, a visiting artist came and talked to me and gave me names of other artists that were doing social political things and then I started thinking what really affects me the most in my life? And it was children that were abused. And since the pediatric ICU covered 17 counties in New York, from all the way up to Canada down to Pennsylvania, we saw a lot of the abuse cases. And so I started working with that theme. Um, but there had to be something to entice people into the work. It couldn't just be damaged babies. So there was always an element that you would look at it and it'd be beautiful, but then once you start getting more involved in it, you realize that there was something wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and then after I got out of nursing, that theme has continued intermittently within my work. Once in a while it takes a tangent off, but uh, normally there's still a, somewhat of a social-political element to my work. Mm -hmm. um, my husband works with Blue Green Algae and I was doing a show out in um, Illinois and they asked me to do work it was going to be site specific uh, work uh, that had an international theme so I was trying to think of what could be international and um, he says why don't you do contaminated water so I start researching contaminated water and realized 4,000 children died each day from contaminated water. So after the research, I started um, thinking about how I can portray that. So that piece came from that. It was still about children 
and there was 4,000 pairs of shoe prints that was in a stack on all this silk that had been um, silk screened with different types of bacteria and allergies that affected children. So a lot of my research, not a lot, a lot, some of my research has um, research involved in it. The artwork has to, mm-hmm. I have to figure out things before mm-hmm. I can develop the piece. Do you want to talk about, I mean, there there's a lot of worldly problems that affect children. Oh, yeah. And how do you know, yes, that's it, there's a click there, that's the one I'm going to do. What is it, what is the experience like? You know, when you're, in, when you're making art, it develops slowly and you think about it and it's not overnight. It's not a knee jerk. And you start thinking about it and you start developing it and it may start here, but it'll end up over there. Um, I don't know what makes it click in my brain. It just sort of happens and it evolves from that. The idea starts cooking and then it just simmers, simmers, and then all of a sudden it develops. When you're in that incubation stage of, I want to do something global pertaining to kids, are, how does the rest of your day go? Do you find that you're distracted thinking about, well, it could be poverty, it could be, you know, slavery, or, or are you able to kind of do your daily thing and have it sort of simmering in the background. No, I can do my daily thing. The other thing with my artwork, if you would look at my website, mm-hmm. my materials are very different. Almost every piece I do has new materials. So sometimes I call myself the material girl because the material starts first and then I figure out the material and then I have to figure out a theme to go into it. So the one piece was the rice bowls, uh, which was international hunger. And I had seen, I was in Ecuador in an artist residence and we went into the back country and there's these piles of rice on the side and they're waiting to be picked up. And So this rice was in my mind about third world countries. That's where they get their nutrition. And that was probably 10 years ago. And then I saw somebody make rice bowls um, at Sculpture Space in Utica. But they were perfect rice bowls out of butter dishes. And I thought, wow, that's quite interesting. And then there was another artist, um, Lab, um, and I'm forgetting his first name, but he worked with rice, and I always remember his rice pieces. So these three things of rice and a couple other things kept coming into my brain, and the Everson Museum in Syracuse asked me to do a site-specific piece, and I knew I wanted to develop this idea of rice. So I started researching world hunger, rice, and who, what are the countries that had the worst rice, a worst hunger and starvation. And so the whole piece developed from that. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking with rice bowls, but they were very sort of abstract. And then there were red threads put through them. And that was like the circulatory system. And then cascading out of them was 
20 to 30 little strands of red thread and those cascaded to the floor. So all these rice bowls were suspended with one thread and they were set up sort of as a globe and the different areas with different color rice of which had the worst starvation, worst hunger. So the ones that were rolling, cascading to the floor was sort of like, if we were all interconnected, the roadways, the airways, the waterways, if we were all interconnected, there would not be world starvation, world hunger. And there should not be. If we can just get our act together to help support. Uh, I don't know what's, I mean, in the future with global warming, this will get worse. But that was, that was the, that's how that piece developed. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't, like, it's not instant. It could develop over years. Are you hoping that your pieces influence um, political action? Is that part of your goal? Or is it just, is it more to symbolize? Well, it would be great it had some political action, but I think I'm preaching to the choir. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's... I, I, I'm preaching to the choir. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there has been times, there was uh, a piece I had done years ago out in Michigan, um, or Indianapolis, and it was four years later, the curator, the director, emailed me and said, I just want you to know I met this woman that saw your piece four or five years ago, and she remembered it. So that, so whatever, I've, I, rem, I know the piece, but that influenced her, and maybe it took her to another step, maybe when she went political or something, when she went to vote. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't. I'm not in that aspect. So you're um, not you're not calculating what's the ripple effect of right. this. You're doing your art and then you're letting it speak for itself. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm not following up with what happens with it mm-hmm. or how people think. One of um, one of my pieces, the Dr. Bob Kanu, who's the head of the ICU, we were very good friends. And he came. He would come to some of my shows, and I remember him saying to me, "I was on the witness stand for this abuse case, and your piece came to mind." <laughs> and I was like, "Wow!" That I mean, it's not going to influence what he says, but it was really nice that like that would pop into his mind while he's on this witness stand. That it has an impact. Yeah, yeah. I see. So I like the work to have an impact, and. If somebody can remember your work two or three or four years later, you've had an impact. So that's been a change. Let me understand if I've gotten this right, because you started off saying it used to be for beauty's sake. Well, it's never for beauty's sake. Beauty has to be in it. It's not, because you can't just have, if you remember, if you know the work of the Vietnam War, it was bloody, it was gross, and I didn't want to make work that way because it's a one-liner. Then you go in, you look at it, you know what it's saying to you. If you have some beauty or some other element that brings people in, then it's going to stay with them because they have to think about it. So it's like walking... I remember somebody said to me, um, a professor's like, when you're making work, it's you're on the top of the wave. So it's a fine line between 
too much information, not enough information, it to stick with somebody. And you have to think about going and looking at artwork and then asking yourself if you go to a group show, how many pieces do you really remember and then why? Okay. Yeah, I was wondering how much do how much work do you do for the audience? How much do you explain these red strands are the circulatory system? This mm-hmm. is about the lack of interconnectedness. That's a tough decision. The statement that was in the rice bowls, um, it was just titled rice, was about the idea of world hunger. It wasn't explaining the elements within it. Mm-hmm. But um, when I was installing, and it took a lot of weeks to install this, because there was 400 bowls that were suspended. So one little boy came in, He might, I want to say nine years old, and they were at like four and a half feet high. And he came in and he didn't say anything. He walked around the installation and he stops and he looks at me. He goes, when you look up, it's like you're underwater. And so I'm sure that child's going to remember that piece forever. And then because he could read the statement, he can put the two things together. And so when the Dorsons at the Everson Museum, they'd have everyone sit down and look up. Oh. And I had never pictured it that way, but then I started look, going down and looking up. Uh-huh. So it was pretty interesting. That is. Yeah. That is interesting. You mentioned um, that your husband works in environmental science um, and ecology. And I'm wondering, and I seem to be asking this a lot, but I'm wondering how it is for, for you and for the two of you to keep your spirits up because you're tackling very difficult and painful subjects in your art and Mm. he's also tackling some green algae, bacteria. Uh, I know. We, (laughs) um, you don't focus on that. You do what you can. I mean, we, you have to do what you can. You can't, be always negative, and it's not good to be that way either. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we go rock climbing, mm-hmm. which is a whole nother thing. And um, so when you're actually climbing on the wall, I always joked like it's the only thing that I can. When I'm on the wall climbing, it's the only thing you think about. Everything else is gone in your life. You're thinking it's a problem solving and. Your problem solving, where your feet go, where your hands go, how hard it is, but everything else is gone in your life. So it's this mm-hmm. wonderful focus. So you're not thinking about that other stuff. It's like mindfulness, whether you want to or not. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, you're in big trouble. Right. So I'm sure you've been asked this before, but how did you get started with with the rock climbing? Oh, my husband had this friend, Steve Allen, and we would go out to Utah and do these major backpacking trips with a group of us that were anywhere from 10 to 12. We'd go out in the backcountry for nine days, 10 days. We were self-supporting, bringing our own food and everything. Um, It was a great group, and we did this for 10, 12 years. Mm -hmm. And one year, Steve said, drop your backpacks, we went into a slot canyon, he says, and we're going to climb. 
And as soon as my feet and hands hit the wall, I was like, I'm in love with this. I came back. I was still nursing. One of the nurses I worked with was a rock climber, and we started going to Rochester. Now, this is more than 20 years ago. And went to Rock Ventures there, learned indoor rock climbing. And then my husband started coming along, and then we went up to the Adirondacks to Rock and River in Keene and got lessons, learned how to set up top ropes, learned how to put trad gear in, and we've been climbing since. We didn't climb a lot at the beginning, but as the years have gone by, and now that I don't um, work anymore, teach, um, I climb a lot. So you're going to have to forgive my, you know, my ignorance about this. I, I have talked to other people who do this, but what is the part that is so compelling? Is it moving your body up this very difficult uh, space? Is it getting to the top? Where's the, the impact for you? Um, it's an adrenaline rush <laughs> when you get to the top or even just climbing. You're so focused. I don't actually have a, a solid answer for that, mm -hmm. but it's something that you, you, you just love doing. You love being outside. You love being on the rock. Mm -hmm. Even we have a new gym here called, um, Central Rock Syracuse. And there's a community of people that are great, um, they're supportive, they're fun to be with, and then you go outside and you're in nature, you mm -hmm. travel and you meet these wonderful people. And you're there and you, when you're rock climbing, you're using 300 of your muscles. Mm. So it's this continuous element that it's about balance and strength and figuring out these problems as you're going up. So when you started getting interested in it, was one of the pieces of this, I want to get exercise and be outside because it's good for me, or it just was wonderful? It was just wonderful. So it wasn't a calculated like, well, you know, I'm middle-aged, I'm getting older, I yeah. need to start doing, um, you know, weight-bearing exercises, <laughs> no, or no. none of that. No, no, because I, you have to be literally in love with rock climbing to do it. I mean, because if you want to just, like, be weight-bearing and keep physically fit, you can just go to the gym mm -hmm. for, you know, two or three times a week. Or so something. it's about the rock. It's about the rock and being in nature and being outside and having... I mean, you can be outside, you can be hiking, you can be bike riding, mountain biking, but there's something different about rock climbing. So this, not to get too, you know, sort of uh, metaphysical here, but does it feel like the rock has its own personality? Well, all the places you go are very different. Mm -hmm. There are different types of rocks. There's different, some are overhung with jugs, some are slab climbing, so there's palming up. Some are face climbing where there's little holds, so you just use like little bits of your fingertips. Um, and there's different climates, and so you you just experience this wonderfulness out there mm -hmm. of different areas of the country and the world. Do the rocks 
have distinct smells depending on what they're made of? Um, I don't think the rack, but the area you're in. Mm-hmm. Like if you're in the desert, that's going to smell different than if you're in the Adirondacks mm-hmm. or if you're down in Kentucky uh, or we've been over to Spain a few times. The smells over there are different. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been to Sicily. So, yeah, I mean, there's different environments totally do you do you combine while doing your work like doing a show or doing art and rock climbing or does your husband go to a conference and say hey let's find the good rocks there that does happen so he'll go to a conference and i'll say all right i'll come along and then we can climb yeah so he has a trip coming up in a few years to poland and we haven't been to Poland climbing. So he'll go to the conference and I'll fly over later and meet him. Mm-hmm. Um, we did um, climbing in Rio de Janeiro. He was down there. So then I came along. Um, New Zealand, he had a conference. I went along. Australia. So there. And then I had a show in Wales. And he came along so we could climb. That's that's great. That's <laughs> lovely. Yeah. So do you want to say anything about aging and how aging has been for you what the experience has been like (laughs) aging um I don't like aging (laughs) um and especially because what I'm doing is really sort of hard on your body and I'm up to seven surgeries now (laughs) all of them minor but um from rock climbing some of them are from rock climbing yeah like a torn meniscus. I just had a bone chip in my knee removed. I've had shoulder surgery from it. Uh, so it's very trying on your body. So you have to really stay in shape. So it's really important at my age to really continuously work out and stay in shape. Younger people don't need to do that. They can just go climb. I can't. I used to be able to climb like six, seven days in a row. I can't do that anymore. So I can climb two or three days, and then I'll take a rest day. Uh, I was just out in Red Rocks with a partner, and we had three three good days, four good days of climbing, and we got up, and we were both like, oh, and it was going to be a rain day, and we were like so happy. <laughs> so we could both like take a good rest day, and then we had two more days of climbing. But, yeah, no, it's trying on your body, and you have to... You have to continuously work out. And when we first started climbing, there was no workout schedule. There was no training. And now it's become very, um, there's a ton of podcasts, there's a ton of books written. There's trainers that teach you how to get stronger and to avoid injury. Mm-hmm. And so that's, especially at my age, uh, and I'm in my mid-60s, and I'm still climbing. And it was really, when we were out in Red Rocks with my partner, I was going up. I said, I'm going to go lead this. It was a 10B. Um, and I was sort of at the top, and I didn't hear the conversation. But when I got down, um, my partner, Brett, said, oh, the girls wanted to know how old you were. And I told them your age, and they were like, I'm so excited we can climb till we're that old. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I love being a role model for younger women, mm-hmm. and I love helping them out. The other day, we took a 12-year-old out, uh, this young girl, and she's just started climbing this year, and she had not been on rock only once, 
like a year ago, and it was just great to mentor her. So I love mentoring these women and showing women that even at my age, I can be climbing five tens and above. Some. Uh, and only rock climbers will know what that means. Yes. <laughs> I'm guessing it means uh, difficulty. Difficulty. Yeah, yeah, there's different levels. Mm-hmm. Like the highest is 515, and there's just a few select people that can do that mm-hmm. um, more and more. Now that the gyms are opening, it's really interesting because the climbing is just going to accelerate. Mm-hmm. People are going to be so good so fast. It does seem like it's getting much more in the in the public eye, or I, oh, yeah. I hear much more about it. And my guess is, I, I could be wrong, but this what you described as one of the appeals is, you know, you cannot check Facebook while you're rock yeah. climbing, right? <laughs> so the idea of this this utter focus and utter. Uh, being present is so different from our everyday, most people's everyday life. Everyday life, right. When you're out there, you know, you don't want to, you know, my phone is there, but I don't have it out. Mm -hmm. And the other interesting thing is people go to a gym and they get bored. You can go and boulder, which is without a rope, and you can get really strong and you can work out with a bunch of friends and it's fun. So people that don't like lifting weights but love bouldering. So people now realize that you can get like a good workout. Just, I know. There's a, did you ever hear the expression earth gym? No. Yeah, the idea of using, you know, like bouldering or something like that to, mm-hmm. to get your exercise that you don't need to do any equipment. Right, right. Mm-hmm. 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 Anything else pertaining to aging that you've been thinking about, or is <laughs> I try not to think about aging. You know, every time I turn one of those zero numbers, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty, I was like, oh, now I can tell people I'm sixty. But the other day, I was in Red River Gorge. Um, it was a girl trip. It was really a great trip, and there were three of us. But I met this couple, and she's in her she's seventy five and still climbing. So she became like my role model. Like I still, and she was climbing hard. I was like, okay, you're warming up on a ten A. I'm impressed, <laughs> and it was great. So I mean, aging. If you, I th- I think it's just really important to stay in shape. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to find an exercise that you really like and to stay in shape. Watch your diet. Don't do anything to excess. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, drink a beer, have a glass of wine. Don't eat a lot of sweets. I'm a vegetarian, have been for 45 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when I was coming out of high school and my nursing school, I was 45 pounds heavier than I am now. And when I started working out, which was somewhere the second college I'd gone to get my nursing degree, I started exercising. And I I happen to love exercising, mm-hmm. which helps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, that's certainly consistent with, I mean, you hit on two biggies, the, you know, keeping your body moving. Yeah. Um, and the idea of mentoring someone uh, is is really been shown those kinds of things they have this name called generativity the idea of 
you know, giving to someone, teaching someone, being a mentor that you may not necessarily be around to see the results right. of. So it's mm -hmm. just that that paying it forward kind of right. idea that seems to make a big difference in how people age. Mm -hmm. Well, and also life. when you're working with students for 20 years, mm -hmm. they're younger, they motivate you, mm -hmm. they keep you young. And, yeah, it, it's great to look back and with Facebook, I could see that some of the people I taught, some of the students, what they're doing and how they're progressing and what they're... It's mm -hmm. been great... I mean, there's a reason for Facebook. Because <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you lose track of these people. I mean, I sort of close one door and open another, but with Facebook, you kind of keep, keep looking back mm -hmm. and following these people that are great. Are there any projects that are coming up for you in the future that you're planning? Well, um, besides Poland. <laughs> uh, Climbing, but we're going to Spain on Monday um, for two weeks. The other thing I've been doing, and this is really fun, is my nephew is a wrestler. His um, wrestling name is Dalton Castle. Um, it's his, his regular name is Brett Gill, and he wrestles for Ring of Honor, and I make his spandex outfits. And if you, I can't describe him, but just look up Dalton Castle and you will, you will just love what he does. He's extremely entertaining. Dalton Castle. Yeah. And dot, dot com, dot org. Just Google it and it Google. comes up. Google. Yeah. And he's, he's 13? How old? No, no. He is in his 30s. He's almost. in his 30s. So he's now won the championship for Ring of Honor. What is Ring of Honor? So there's the WWE, which is the world... Something wrestling, world wrestling, entertainment, and then the one under that is the Ring of Honor. So, and it's on TV, and I think Saturday night or something you can watch it. And he's he's there every time. Tell me about tell me about <laughs> the best costume you've made him. The best costume is uh, they're always the latest one. So it's it's a blue spandex with um, inlays coming up the side, and his motif is peacock. And so there's these feathers. Is that, that what this is? Yeah, well, those are ideas for him. Uh-huh. Um, I actually have a picture of it in here. But, uh, and then now we found so on rhinestones, so the whole front is all rhinestones. And then I make his capes, and then he has these wings he opens up, he he is so entertaining. So I'll make him an outfit two or three times a year. <laughs> he had one for Las Vegas because he was he was going to be there, and it was all gold and with all sequences. And so he comes out with these jumpsuits, and then he has these two boys. That he calls them their boys. And he they take off the cape and the wings that are attached, and then they unzip him, and then they help him take off his spandex, and then he's in his low shorts to wrestle. And is he known for his costumes? Well, he's getting known more for them, but, he, I mean, he's just, like, this entertaining person when he's on stage. How <laughs> fun. Yeah. Do yeah. you, where do you find your materials? Do you well, go he to goes to or? New York. He goes to New York, Yeah, right? and then we'll collaborate on them. 
So he'll start with an idea and I'll add, and it's this back and forth. And he lives in Albany, so we, I go back and forth with, with fittings and stuff. <laughs> that sounds remarkable for a lot of different yeah, reasons. Yeah. So it's just so much fun to do it. And what a collaboration. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so is it always peacock themed? It's always a peacock theme. It's theme. always a peacock yeah. theme. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting, of course, because they like to strut around and oh, show yeah. their stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we were at one of his events, and it was outside of Rochester where the family is from. And we were all in this one section. And all of a sudden they go in intermission, they announce who's coming on the second half. And they announce Dalton Castle. And all of a sudden these people at the other end are screaming, we want Dalton Castle. And we're like, who are they? We're his family, and we're not even doing that. He has this following that's amazing. And they hold up his face. And they, <laughs> like they do with uh, the basketball yes, team. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and how they know who's the most famous or who's followed the most is who sells the most T-shirts. And so we have a bunch of his T-shirts with his face on them. <laughs> That's an interesting demographic. Yes. Oh, yeah. it's totally interesting. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, I had this... I'd say I have this great life. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I did 20 years in nursing, 20 years of teaching. For the last four years, I make my artwork, I rock climb, I garden, and now yeah, I help my nephew out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's, that is, but it's also you've taken the initiative to make it the way you like it. Yeah. It hasn't been handed to you. No, no. You've worked very yeah. hard for that. And I, yeah, you know, and sort of the planner so when we're getting together on trips I'm the one that like organizes and gets mm-hmm. everyone together and it's really fun mm-hmm. <laughs> well you are a legend around town I'll tell you <laughs> I know I know a lot of people who know you and they they have such nice things to say about you and 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 always something about how impressive you are <laughs> oh thanks you must thanks. know that you must know that well you know i worked in these two worlds of the hospital the mm-hmm. university hospital and syracuse the two biggest employees that's so, right i mean it used to when i was that transition between nursing and the house and teaching i i couldn't go out without knowing someone it was really interesting, like, go out to dinner. My husband was like, do you know everyone? It's not as much in, anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Syracuse is like that. It is. Yeah. It's a small town. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly is. Well, thank you so much for telling us about your life and all of these interests that our listeners may not be that familiar with. Yeah, so they can... Find out more about your art, and is the best place to to see your work is marygeal.com? Yes. Okay, yes. Mm-hmm. so I'm going to put that in the notes. Anything else? And I certainly would, I'm going to look more <laughs> with Dalton Castle. Yeah, look up Dalton Castle. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's <laughs> really interesting. I'm excited to see that. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for talking with me today in this be- in your in your beautiful backyard. It's a lovely evening and oh, thanks. Thank you so great. much. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at nicolechristina.com. 
And please consider becoming a patron of the show. You will get access to exclusive bonuses and you will be part of the Zestful Aging community. Keep us going strong. Go to patreon.com slash Zestful Aging. See you next time for another episode of Zestful Aging.